Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? We're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. It's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called The Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon, and me as we celebrate the early years with. You know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972. Metal. All the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard. Stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello and welcome to the Rock on Tours podcast. I am Gary Kemp. And I am Guy Pratt. All over the world, musicians are sat around with time on their hands and stories worth sharing. So even in lockdown, we are finding a way to make our little series happen. And this week on the show, we're talking to one of the UK's finest songwriters, multiple Ivan Novello Award winner, Grammy-nominated, storyteller, songwriting coach, and all-round great bloke, Mr Chris Difford. Chris, hello, how are you? Where are you? What the hell? Um, I'm at home in, uh, in the village of Firl in East Sussex, and um, I can't tell you how uh, extraordinary experience it is being at home first of all and not being on tour yeah so I'm, I'm slowly getting used to being in family life which is bizarre what are you doing what's your day uh well the day is uh it's repetitive let's say um <laughs> you know i get up at about seven and the first thing i do is just sort of meander into morning and then meander into afternoon, and then meander into evening. That sounds like a lyric already. It, it sounds like, and it sounds like a Chris Difford lyric. <laughs> Can I just say it, one thing? Because uh, for people can't see this, right? That we are, we do have a Zoom thing going on. That um, as all of us have sort of slowly fallen apart as the lockdown has dragged on, Chris still has the top button done up on his Fred Perry like a proper mod, <laughs> and I said, yeah. "It's amazing." I've just got off my bike. <laughs> Were you uh, meant to be on tour, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary to think that this was going to be our most lucrative year um, and we were going to be, literally, this week was the rehearsal week and then I wouldn't be home again until just before Christmas. Has Glenn put you on furlough? (laughs) (laughs) He's put me on something, but it is on furlough. Um, And it's a real shame because we were going to be out in America supporting Hall and Oates, which is a tremendous ticket. We all, we just did oh. Madison square garden with them and, uh, mm. it was, uh, it, people really enjoyed it. So 
it's a shame to miss all of that. And then we were doing a tour with Madness and Jules Holland. So it was a very, very busy year. It's, and you've, you've done um, Madison Square Garden because you always had a, a funny thing, didn't you, where, where squeeze were like massive on the coasts. Yeah. You? I mean, you've done Madison Square Garden off your own back before, haven't you? We've done it twice before, and I don't remember either time because <laughs> um, it was in the bad old good old days. And um, I, I remember having a fight after the first gig uh, uh, at my own birthday party. Um, <laughs> but that was all I could remem remember, and I think it was with a guy from Def Leppard. Oh, did you win? Well, he already had an arm in a sling, so oh. I, I was kind of ahead of the game. <laughs> oh, I, and then I, he got, then he he got the it, drummer to back him up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go back to the beginning, though, Chris. Um, how, how you found out you were a lyricist? What what got you into music as a kid? Um, well, um, meandering, I suppose, from as a young teenager. Uh, not really being that excited by school or education particularly or at all. Um, I lived on a council estate in South London and there was, there was really nothing going on f apart from being in a gang, which I didn't really want to do. So I kind of just sat, sat at home and then um, a friend of mine who lived like a couple of blocks away, he had uh, like an Iggy Pop album he had like the Stooges first album, I mean, and he had the MC5 album and he played it really loud and it really attracted me to his house. It was like the, f the sort of flute being played. So I went down and listened to that, that and then um, a couple of months later I went to my first gig which was to see David Bowie and that was the most bit wow. t turning point really. What tour was that? Um, well, it was pre-Spiders. He was... Um, he was doing a bit of Jacques Burrell and, and doing some of the stuff from uh, Hunky, Dor Hunky Dory. Oh, wow. And he played at, uh, it was at Elton College in South London. And one of the, everybody in those days would sit on the floor and watch concerts, cross-legged and sort of very intent, nod nodding your head. Mm. And he came down into the audience with his acoustic guitar. He had a blue 12, 12 string and he handed it out to people in the audience to strum along. Wow. And... Uh, I don't know, on the way home, I just thought, it looks like he's having fun, that seems like the gig for me. So did you start playing, how did you get your first guitar? Is that what happened, or you didn't start writing words straight away? Uh, no, I was writing words before that, I've got some of them here, and um, oh. it was just, basic, just basically poetry, I guess, um, what it was. Um, very sort of uh, floral and uh, a bit hippie-like, if I suppose. Mm. But it was something that kept me amused and um, kept me out of harm's way. My two elder brothers had already left home and it was just me, my mum and dad, and that was a little bit of a boring thing to be involved in. So I just sort of went to my room and wrote lyrics or poems. There was nothing from that period that made it into a song later, was there? No, not really. Um, you know, um, I mean, I can grab a folder from, from up here and... Uh, oh. He blows the dust from off the top. Yeah. <laughs> Elegy of the Afterworld. Wow. Oh, what? Go on. Yeah. Very prog rock. I suppose I was influenced yeah. a bit by King Crimson as well. Oh, who had their own lyricist who, who, who wasn't in the band? Yeah, what a great job. Um, uh, what's he, his name? Um, Pete, Pete Sinfield. Pete Sinfield. 
It's not yeah, very well. Yeah, he went well, on to write for um, Dollar. It's fun, isn't it? And he did. He wrote for Dollar. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting. You were influenced by someone who was primarily a lyricist, right from from the get go, as it were. I, I, I sort of half wanted to be in a band, but not. I wasn't that fussed. I would have rather just delivered the lyrics. You know, the Bernie Tolpin life was for me, but it didn't happen because you know I met Glenn, I met Jules Holland, and. And we got in a rehearsal room, and then suddenly it just sounded great playing gu- yeah, you, gu- gu- guitar in a pub. You don't just meet these people. How did it? How did it happen? Uh, well, I put an ad in a sweet shop window for a guitarist to join a band. I didn't have a band. I was just uh, imagining I had a band. <laughs> I imagined I had a record deal, and I imagined I had a load of gear as well. And, and nobody rang. <clears throat> it was just above bunk bed for sale. How, how did you get off in a large chest, though? Yeah. <laughs> How and old then, were you? Uh, I was supposed I was 17 and Glenn was 15. Oh, so you are the older. Yeah, so I met Glenn, he was 15 and Jules was 15. They'd been at school together and that's how they were, They connected. And were they both proficient players at that time? Or? Jules was extraordinary. He could play, you know, blues and boogie-woogie on the piano just like he does now and it was... Uh, Something that I never. Oh my God! Even then, (laughs) even then, yeah. And um, you know, if if, I mean, I've got tapes that we made in those in 1973, and his piano playing at that time was exquisite, absolutely amazing. And Glenn too. I mean, Glenn's guitar playing. When I first met him, he'd he idolised Jimi Hendrix, and therefore mimicked every Jimi Hendrix song. And he used to sit in his room and just play along, note for note. And, and can I say, it, at that time, it was probably pub rock that was going on. Was it bands like Brinsley Schwartz, or is this before then? No, it's about that time, yeah, isn't well, it? Well, pub rock was kind of not as <clears throat> not as uh, full on as it was. Yeah, I mean, Brinsley Schwartz were definitely around. Ducks Deluxe um, oh, yeah. were around, Flies. but but the, yeah, but the, yeah, the Coastal Flies, but Ian Jury and Elvis Costello and all that. That was nineteen seventy six onwards, I guess. We first got together in 73. Our first, um, we met a manager called Miles Copeland. Who did, he managed the police, And right? then we... Um, was that, were you, yeah, but was, was he already managing then? Yes, he managed Renaissance and Curved oh. Air. Oh, well, yeah, right. And Climax Blues Band. So we went out and supported Climax Blues Band and Curved Air and Renaissance. And what kind of songs? What kind of songs were there at that time? Uh, what, Renaissance? No, you, you guys. Who are you? Because we all know you as a kind of. <laughs> we all know your band as a sort of you know that post-punk sound, a very sort of tuneful Americana pop with lots of very sort of British working-class lyrics in there. But that's not what you were doing, surely, in '73. Or... Um, no, we played uh, we played boogie woogie and blues, and we played um, songs that we'd written, that were, but a bit sort of. Uh, bit poppy, I guess, a bit more poppy than we had become. Um, and we had a bit of an attitude, but I don't know really what it was. It was kind of, we were still trying to find what we were doing, I suppose. It wasn't until we met John Cale that we found out who we really were. What? Tell us. How did you meet John Cale? He produced our first album. He was managed by Miles Copeland oh, as well. That's how that came about. Um, <laughs> So he he got us in the studio in Pathway. In, oh, uh, we did Pathway. our first Spandau did our first demos in Pathway. Yeah, so did we. We did fifteen songs there with Baz. Fifteen songs. 
Yeah, in, in one weekend with Baz. And isn't it where Dire Straits apparently recorded their first uh, the big hit single, which, which, which was done in Pathway? It's a very fa- tiny little box space. Tiny place. Yeah, I know. And John Cale came along to listen to us perform the 15 songs that we demoed there. And uh, he fell asleep um, in the rehearsal room. <laughs> so he was a bit out of his head at the time. So Jules wrote C-U-N-T on his forehead in a, in an indelible pe- with an indelible pen. <laughs> and then we put him in a taxi and sent him back to his hotel in Northgate. <laughs> The Portobello, that would have been, I expect. It was the Portobello, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was indeed. And did you have a relationship then, at that point, uh, t- together in, in, in that you were definitely the lyricist and Glenn yeah, was writing the music? So. Yes, definitely. And how would that work? Would that be, Glenn said, here's a tune, are you giving him the lyrics? Um, I would uh, send him or give him... 20 or 30 different lyrics completely written from beginning to end and then I wouldn't see him for a month and then he'd turn up with a cassette with 20 or 30 songs on it and um, that would be the most exciting thing waiting for the songs to come back and then to put the cassette in and listen to what he had done and his demos equal Pete Townsend's demos you know they were like he played everything on them and they sounded extraordinary but it was really uh uh, difficult for for like a, our a drummer who wanted to be inventive himself, but, but Glenn had already invented all the drums. So. What was the strike rate? I mean, it was basically did did a song come back for every lyric you sent him? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was extraordinary. Um, you know, it was a very a fertile time because, like now, we're in lockdown and it feels like 1973, 1972. It feels like you know I could just lie on the floor and write lyrics all day if I had that in my mind but it's I'm not 17 years old any, any, anymore and there are other things to do do you still have it because I have when I've done your songwriting weekends and yeah. stuff is that it seems writing lyrics seems like a tap that you can't turn off it seems like they're just always pouring out of you um yeah I mean I, <clears throat> I wish I was more um engaged in in that person the guy that writes lyrics he's here but he doesn't really um engage very often at this present time and when when we i spoke to glenn three weeks ago and we said the same thing that it feels like the early 70s wouldn't it be great to write loads of songs and then i thought well what does it mean i can't figure out what what to write about and what does that mean in itself at this point in our life Wow. So it's going to take a while, while for that to digest and then something will come out. I mean, were, were all your, um, would you say all your lyrics had a sense of autobiography about them? Yeah, I think some of them had um, ex-wives in them, yeah. <laughs> and, and, is, and is that why it's, it's difficult to, 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 to write now? Because the stories aren't happening around you that you can see? Or is this, this is quite a big story, though, isn't it? I mean, people on their own in houses. Yeah, there's lots to write about. I've been... What I've been following a photographer called um, Grace Della, and she's a nurse, NHS nurse, and she's a fantastic photographer. Every day she posts something on Instagram and you get very moved by it. But what's the story behind the person behind the mask? And that's, that's really what interests me when they go home. You know, these are, these are like soldiers, these people, and they, yeah. they're... Um, 
you know, they're, 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 they're living a very dangerous life for us. Um, but the photography always brings out something to write about, I think. When you got those songs back from uh, from Glenn, did you ever feel, oh, you know, this isn't how I imagined it? Were you ever <laughs> disappointed by that? And did it take you a while to get your ear around the scansion or whatever he's chosen? Yeah, there's been occasions when I've been, I found myself being very grumpy in a rehearsal room trying to figure out what the chords were to the song that we'd just written. Oh, and God, thinking, does he like a chord, I have to say. I played on chord. stage with him. <laughs> I, I, it, it, chord you salad did, yeah. is, is the is the the term we would use in the business. I mean, some of the most complex songs I've ever come across, ever tried to play. I know. And in rehearsals, it's mind boggling sometimes. And, but then I step back from it and I think actually there's genius there. And, um, mm. you know, like there was one song on the last album, which almost had a different chord for each, each verse, each verse structure had a different structure of chords. And when we played it live, you know, it was just like, what the hell's going on here? I remember because you called and I had to send you a load of chords because you didn't have enough, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, because what's interesting here, Chris, is that because you do write technically incredibly complex lyrics as well. I mean, something like, um, yeah. you know, Up the Junction. Yeah. It's an extraordinary kind of endless stream of... Yeah. and But something like that, by the way, which is so... Technically brilliant. I mean, did that just fall out or was that sort of endlessly worked and worked and worked? Uh, that was written in uh, New Orleans on our f very first American tour. We were I was doing my laundry and uh, we'd already been away for three months on tour, which was a long time. And uh, we were in New Orleans and it was a scary place to be. And I was uh, you know, watching my smalls go around and I just thought, I really want to be at home. And then I started writing about home. And that's what happened up the junction, just fell out of the pen. If you don't mind me sharing <clears throat> a personal story, I did love the fact that, that um, uh, your wonderful wife, went back, I remember went back when she was your girlfriend and she was at one before you were to get... Are you sure you want to tell the story? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's just, she was looking at, she was moving house and was looking at buying a place in Clapham and Chris went, you know you can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I, you can't, can't be my missus and live in Clapham. No. <laughs> I mean, what's so, what's so great about something like Up the Junction is, is that it does have a, um, a sense of old world nostalgia about it. It's, it's just a kitchen sink drama. I mean, it's, it's in black and white. Yeah. And, mm. and yet it's so dense. I mean, do, do you think your head was in... Taste of honey. Yeah, exactly. Was your head in that sort of yeah. space of thinking about that kind of a Britain when you were down in New Orleans? Yeah, because I was brought up on um, Wednesday plays on the BBC. And they were all fantastic and they were all short and sweet and stories of domestic bliss in the 60s and 70s. And my mum and dad used to love watching them, so I used to sit up and watch them with them. And, you know, look at the people that wrote those and produced them. They're incredible people. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I was really... Uh, I was really locked into that. I think Bernie Taupin said that he, he writes with other songs and tunes in his head that he won't yes. ever tell Elton what they are. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do, do you do yeah. the same thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Bob Dylan is a very good person to do that with yeah. because of the the um, scan of the way he sings, like, uh, for instance, um, Tangled Up in Blue is a fantastic song on Blood on the Tracks, and it's such a simple rhyme, and if you get it in your head for long enough, you can just completely make it your own. What's that programme on the BBC where they sing a tune to different li- lyrics? or? But, you know. Oh, um, well, that was Tim Brooke Taylor. Oh, yeah, that, was I, I, if, that wasn't it, yeah. If only they'd find the Squeeze song and a Bob Dylan song <laughs> and found the actual marriage, <laughs> yeah, it would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and so going forward, in, in, in suddenly you become a, a, a hit band. What, what was that first moment? What was that song? The, what, when, and when did you write that? Was it in the bag for a while before it suddenly became a hit? Take Me, I'm Yours, isn't it? What take me? I'm I'm yours was the first. Take me, I'm yours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was written a long time before we got to record it, and that was the day that John Cale was so um, unwell that he didn't make it in. So we decided not to waste the day but to carry on and record something on our own, and that became our first hit. No, I was going to say because I remember reading. Uh, it might be one of your first, if not your first, interview in NME when that was a hit. And in one of the big bold quotes, you slagged off the Sex Pistols, and I remember thinking, "God, that's brave." <laughs> it was something I don't know if it was you, probably Glenn, who said, um, "So I thought the chord sequence from Anarchy was done." <laughs> well, that would have been Glenn. I wouldn't have known what a yes, chord sequence was in those days. <laughs> <laughs> but Chris, what was, was the, what was the band that changed you from being, you know, maybe a prog rocker? What was the what was the biggest influence upon Squeeze that made? you the band you were the kind of music you were going to make i don't think there could be a band because we were five very different individuals with five different um influences and that was what's so brilliant about it really because we didn't all listen to the same music um so you know jaws would be listening to fats domino while glenn would be listening to can let's say and then i would be listening to um King Crimson or Genesis or something like that, maybe, or The Who. Um, and um, our drummer was probably not listening to anything, but we were all sort of basically listening to different <laughs> things. <laughs> our drummer was not listening to anything. <laughs> but there was, there was a sort of, there was a kind of music that was happening sort of in parallel with punk. Yeah, I think, I remember living in Deptford at the time and there was this huge... Uh, wake wake up call and the wake up call came from Elvis Costello and Ian Jury because both lyrically they were, were right in the middle of their their uh, brilliance and when i listened to their early songs i was just like my god this is this is where the template is and i have to raise my game to be there 
there were a few artists that were making a sort of a sound that had a certain amount of America in it, much more than punk did. So, well, instead of the East Coast, it had something a lot more, maybe about, there was some country feel in there as well. Graham Parsons, maybe as another artist at the time, that... um, that that you seem to be in that world of that, that it was happening at the same time as punk, but it was definitely more musical. Yeah, I think punk. well, that's that's lucky because we had five people that were coming from different parts of the ballpark, and also you know we were starting to hang out with people like Elvis Costello, who was introducing us to country music, music, and we toured with him and his band. Um, you know, there was you know it was an incredible tour. We toured around America for six weeks. Two. Uh, two bands on one tour bus can you imagine every bunk was taken we had to have a security guy (laughs) at each end of the bus to keep the drummers apart (laughs) yeah we had an accountant on the bus too and the bus driver so it was like really intense but it was such great fun i mean did you ever sit down as a band and sort of decide what the band was going to be no (laughs) and where did the name come from uh, Squeeze came, we had lots of names in a hat and um, Glenn's girlfriend's mother pulled the name out of the top hat. We we could have been called Cum, for instance. <laughs> Spelt how? C-U-M. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I know you sort of suffered still with some certain amount of dyslexia. It's interesting that, uh, and you're quite open about that, but it's... It's and I've had emails from you which I still can't read. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but how does someone with dyslexia become a writer of words? I've not really read many books in my life. Um, I've got the concentration, and that's part of dyslexia. I think is you know I'll get like three pages in, and then I'll start thinking about what that bird's doing in the tree outside in the garden or something. And, you know, and my head will just go completely somewhere else i can't concentrate is that why you think you were drawn to lyrics i mean, i'm presuming yeah. that you always read lyrics yeah yeah i always read, read lyrics and or... you know from the beatles and the stones obviously and it, but you know the first the first real records that i kind of tuned into lyrically were oddly you know people like the who for instance you know like um, tommy and quadrophenia the lyrics to those records are Amazing. Lyrics of Quadrophenia are some of the most accomplished. Yeah, absolutely astounding lyricist. But I can see the connection because Pete, those in the, in that in Quadrophenia and Tommy, that's a very much a storytelling lyric. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, you you don't tend to write snapshots of emotions in in your words. You tend to write things that are, are you know, they have they have a tale in there, don't they? Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to. Um work on a tail definitely so so let's go into your pomp now where where was the where was squeezy's pomp where when where, where did you where, where do you see that apex i think when mtv came about um we were the first people to play acoustically on mtv unplugged and our video for a song called hourglass that came out around the same time got an mtv award and it was being uh, it was on telly all the time and that's really when the sort of pomp kicked in, I think. That's when we started to think, well, OK, we've got to get some decent suits. We've got to get makeup before we go on stage. You know, we had a makeup artist. We had somebody making us suits. You know, it was it, we started taking ourselves very seriously for the very first time, I think. And um, that's when we ended up playing Madison Square Garden and stadiums in America. Wow. And, wow. Uh, 
you know, the rest of that kind of period, really, I don't really remember because I just took the bull by the horns and enjoyed every second of it, but from underneath the table, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you know, you talk a lot, of, you know, you're very open about about that side of your life at that time. How, how did you write? Could you still write when you were stoned or, or speeding or whatever you were? Yeah, there was always lucid moments on a tour bus or on a plane where there was, there was a, you know, the pen came out and... There were, there were sort of, you know, whenever we were sitting, whenever the record company said, okay, we need another record, then you just sort of know that that's your time to get the pen out. And uh, regardless of how you felt, that was that was your job, you know. And some, the, I mean, when I read some of the lyrics back from that period, I can tell that I was, they were written at like three o'clock in the morning, you know, four o'clock in the morning when I was completely... Uh, useless basically what was it Hemingway said write drunk edit sober yes yes <laughs> when was the sort of split that was beginning to happen with Jules and you guys what what brought that on do you think oh yeah it was early on wasn't it yes uh, the first time we split up was um Jules had already left to go and form uh the band called the millionaires and he'd gone off to do the tube uh, which TV show, um, and that was all great. And um, it was very sad when he left. It was like having one of your arms. Why did he leave? Well, he left because he wanted to express himself as an individual outside of Squeeze. I think he felt a little bit, a little bit cornered by Glenn and me. <laughs> because he wasn't a songwriter. No, well, he was a songwriter, but he didn't get his songs on the album particularly. Um, and uh, you know, Miles saw Miles, our manager, saw great potential in Jules as a TV present, presenter and put him up for the for the job of the tube and he got it and that's where he went. It was very sad when he went and then we started getting, well then Paul Carrick came into the band and that was amazing. amazing. Then we were recorded with Elvis Costello. How long? How long? How long, how long was he in the band? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Very good, very good. Um, and then... After all of that, after a couple more records, which sort of too many, too many different keyboard players were coming and going, too many different managers were coming and going. There was no stability. We didn't know what we were doing, so we just sort of went, "Oh, let's just give it a rest." So that's what we did. Wow, what year was that? Eighty-four, uh, I think. There tends to be a thing, doesn't there, with bands that, though, I'm to be found, is that once, as soon as you change your first management. Nothing's ever quite the same. Yeah, but we had Jake Riviera as our second manager, and he was extraordinary because he came with a lot of um, great ideas, and you know he wanted us to record a double album with different producers on each, producing aside each: Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds, Elvis Costello, and Paul, McCart Paul McCartney. Wow! And we went in the studios, wow. with, you know, to record tracks to see if that would would work. But the only one that worked was with Elvis, so we recorded the East Side Story album with him. How much of the your issues with mm. with splitting up, or had anything to do with you know booze and and getting wrecked? And did that have any? Um, well. Uh, Play a part I think in we that. were all tired um, and slightly hungover. I mean, our farewell gig was in Jamaica, uh, um, supporting Aretha Franklin and the Grateful Dead, and um, it was the it was the greatest way to exit as a band. Um, and I remember we all got in the lift 
at the hotel after the gig and nobody said a word and we all got out on different floors and that was it. But it's, it's been, it's been amazing the coming back. Cause I know that from my own point of view with, with Spandau after years of hatred, where we go in and out of love and hate and love and hate. Of course. Uh, but, but you just think, well, you know what, you know, the, these, these people mean so much to me in your case, obviously Glenn as well, you know, meant so much to you that it, it seems, seems foolish not to embrace them and sit on a bus with them again. And, remember those days I mean, how did that come about was that tough getting back together with with each other well we split up a few times um so that was the first time there was a second time and a third time and um we're back together now and we've been back together for 15 years i suppose on and off and um it's complicated because relationships just are um whatever whether you're in a band or not and uh, but we make it work and i have to say that um you know playing on madison square garden stage was an extraordinary experience and um i really felt and everybody felt very emotional after that show it was like here we are we're back here again um but in a much better place the music sounded tighter or is tighter um and i think yes we've got issues with each other, but we kind of deal with them. It's family, isn't it? Family, like family, isn't it? Just, just, just before we go, we should also talk about the fact you've written lyrics for other artists, haven't you? Well, yeah. Also, yeah. just the fact you've done, you do so much other stuff, Chris. I mean, all the things I've been involved with, you've been other things. You, it, it, it's yeah. an extraordinary breadth of. Yeah. I mean, how you? It's. I don't know. If it's just you feeling the need to keep yourself occupied, but also, uh, and I've still got to say, you get the jammiest gig. I've ever had in my life, which was being part of your songwriting course, crossing from Southampton to New York on the Queen Mary the Second. Queen Mary, yeah, amazing. Which was, well, amazing. I mean, how how the hell you come up with these things? Did you dine above the salt, guy? It was it was whatever we wanted. We put we put on a show for all the crew. So they loved it, and we sat at the captain's table. We had everything. Amazing. We were above stairs, below decks, the lot. It was amazing. Well, the, the front of, there's one gag I can share, which is when we did put the because Chris very cannily, brilliant thing he did for the was he recruited songwriters, but everyone played a different instrument, so we had a band as well. Yeah, and I even got to do my comedy show in the pub there one night. But brilliant. we played for the crew right at the uh, um, for the crew party, which meant they loved, which meant our cabins got made up beautifully after that. But I remember when I asked one of the stewards, I said, "What's when are we going on?" He said, "You're on after the Somalis." And um, turns, and then this very nice bunch of sort of French young men got up to play, and it was the sommeliers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on! You just, 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 just rattle off. It, you've you've written with Elton, haven't you? Yeah. How, yeah. how was that, Chris? Um, well, it was exactly what you'd imagine, really. I, he asked me to write a lyric. He gave me an idea. Um, I sat up for a few hours and um, faxed it to him because he likes a fax machine, does Elton. So I faxed it to him and then he called me up and said, would I come over to his house in Windsor? So I went to his house in Windsor and uh, he sat at the piano. He put the lyric on the piano and it was written within five minutes. And I was virtually in tears. I couldn't believe how quickly he'd knocked this song up. It was just like genius. Hang on, was you in the room? Yeah, I was just standing behind him. Because famously, hasn't uh, him and Bernie have never been in the same room? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So you broke. Ooh, wow. Well, yeah, and then and then he said to me, "Let's get in the car and 
and we'll go and record the song. And I said, what? We got in, got in his Rolls Royce and we drove to studio. To his home Bray. studio, the <laughs> other end of the garden. <laughs> yeah, in Bray. <laughs> yeah. And there was his band all ready waiting. They just had ah. their lunch and we sort of rocked up with the lyric and he sat at the piano, he played it twice for them. And we recorded it and I was back at his house at four o'clock having scones and tea. It was done. Wow. And what, what album was it on, did it? It was on it a surf- duets album. Alright. Yeah, it was the only song that wasn't a duet. And you even managed Brian Ferry for a while. Yeah, I went into, <laughs> I, went into I, I managed Brian who I adore. I absolutely loved working with him. And I managed Marty Pello, who I also really adored too. And um it was it was an incredible lesson in um just you know, being in a different place. And then just recently, I, I was managing a band called The Stripes, an Irish band. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When I first met them, they were 15 years old and uh, they they were from Cavan in Ireland. And it, it, that was... An you, tra- you managed to drag Chris Thomas out of retirement to produce them, didn't you? Yeah, we, we had a very difficult lunch with him and he just didn't want to do it at all. And then Elton called him on his mobile phone when we were having lunch. And he basically threatened him, I think. I don't know what, what with, but but then we left the the restaurant and he said, oh, okay, I'll bloody do it. you know. And we went to do it and he said, but I'll only do it three afternoons a week. <laughs> but you can imagine... It's probably not for Elton. <laughs> yeah, but for a young band, they didn't want three afternoons a week. They yeah, wanted yeah. like 24 hours a day banging drums and stuff. So it was a hard thing to manage, but it was great fun. Can I, can I say, Chris, it's an... It's an absolute pleasure to, to know you in this business. There are a oh, few people, you. few people as nice as, as you and as easy. And we've, we've, we don't see each other a lot, but when we do, we're, we're always, I think, happy to yeah. be in each other's company. I'm sure I can oh, speak for Guy as well. Actually, I don't thank like you. him. I never liked company. him. I never I liked him. Never liked him. Hateful man. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you for coming out of lockdown onto Zoom. Thank you. God bless. Good luck. Well, that's all for this week. Uh, don't know if you're in or out or home or out and about. Who knows where we are? Uh, but that's it from me and Gary. Thank you. All the best. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.